This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Let's begin with a closer look at long-term care minister Marilee Fullerton's testimony before the Long-Term Care Commission. Reading it, we see that very early on in the pandemic, she was aware of the specific and devastating dangers to vulnerable nursing home residents. She talks about advocating for safeguards like PPE. But from my point of view, what emerges is that she was either unwilling or unable to push those concerns forward and protect those she is responsible for. I'm also questioning whether she ever wrapped her head around the emergency nature of the situation as opposed to her essential mission when she was appointed to run this ministry, and that is reforming long-term care for the long term. I've also have a lot of questions about the time between the first and the even more deadly second wave of COVID-19. I've read parts of the transcripts. My guests have plowed through hundreds of pages. Let me give the numbers out again if you have some experiences you want to share or some questions. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And let's go to David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Marketing Officer of CARP, as well as Dr. Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, a professor at Ontario Tech University who specializes in family caregiving and is an advocate. Hi, everyone. Thanks for Hello. joining us. Hi, Libby. Hello. Thank Hello, you. Hello, doctor. Hi. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's start with uh, Dr. Stamatopoulos. So you've he- uh, read, I believe, 600 pages. Oh, it's been fun. Yeah, it's been fun. <laughs> so what's the takeaway? Uh, complete failure from top to bottom. I mean, I, I eviscerated the Dr. David Williams testimony, which was literally the bomb that kept going off, because ultimately you saw a play-by-play between the two of them kind of saying, well, they're in charge, no, they're in charge, no, they're in charge. There's a lot of passing the buck. Um, but ultimately, you know, both Elliot and Fullerton would say that, you know, he had the final call. So um, the, the fact that he, you know, flagrantly ignored the advice before him. I mean, like he admitted to knowing that asymptomatic and symptomatic staff were going to work sick because they needed the money and they didn't provide paid sick leave. You knew you could have saved so many lives by just offering paid sick leave and hiring more workers to let those workers who are sick stay home. And you didn't. You, these are decisions that cost thousands of lives. And Fullerton herself was quoted several places you know, indicating that she knew asymptomatic, uh, you know, transmission was, was probably going to be bad. Hello. And Did, yet allowing PPE to be diverted away from long-term care and sent to correctional facilities and hospitals. Okay, uh, David, um, on the subject of PPE, it was really interesting. She she said that she was concerned about it at the very beginning, <laughs> even before it was declared a, a pandemic. What became of that? Well, I'm, I, I find that interesting, and I also try to read through these 600 pages as a layman, of course, but um, it's interesting that you wonder whether she talked to uh, Christine Elliott, because Christine Elliott was the Minister of Long-Term Care before the ministry was uh, split into two, health and long-term care, and during her regime, the obsolete equipment from the past had been systematically destroyed because it had expired. And it had not been replenished, although there were cabinet documents going back to uh, 2007 that predicted this exact thing. The wording is quite chilling, that we're going to be in competition for equipment. It's not made in Canada. There's going to be a a race to get our hands on. we got a stockpile now. They destroyed the stockpiles. And uh, John Callahan, the counsel for the commission, who I think was fantastic, asks Christine Elliott, were you aware that it wasn't being replenished? No. 
And she was the minister responsible at the time. And uh, why wasn't it being replenished? Well, we had this new central purchasing system, and I wasn't aware that it had got caught up in that vortex. That's my word, not hers. But she didn't even know it wasn't being replenished. So now it lands in Fullerton's lap, and the, the two of them even talk. If you read their testimony, it seems like they're on different planets. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm trying to get a, a handle on on Fullerton. So if if she was aware of all this, was that, I mean, is it that she didn't want to rock the boat? She was a, a new minister and, and she didn't want to jeopardize her job? Or is that just a part of her personality that she doesn't like to rock the boat? What, what, what's the deal there, Dr. Stamatopoulos? I mean, ultimately, we're never going to know. But the fact of the matter is she had, and she kept reiterating to the commissioners, because she's a physician, she has added expertise, and she saw this coming. She had a feeling something was coming, yet you didn't have a feeling to check on your PPE reserves and to listen to the warnings of the Ontario Nurses Association who came to you in February and said, something that something wicked this way comes, XYZ, are you planning? And they, she couldn't provide answers. And the ONA was like, oh my gosh, this woman seems completely unprepared and nothing's being done. So she was being warned in advance. She knew the problems. Her own notes revealed that she was paying attention to the international landscape and she knew asymptomatic spread was a thing. And she knew that this would hit her her sector the hardest. Yet, you didn't speak up? What, what What are you there for? What is your role? Who are you there to protect? I mean, you have one job, protect these seniors. That's it. One job. Anyway, David, um, I mean, do you have any insight on that? Was it that she was a new minister? And uh, I, I, I don't have. And to be fair, I don't have any direct. Uh, you know, there's not a um, you know the money quote where she admits to this. And and I agree with the doctor. We're not really going to know. But but it seems to me that there's a lot of deer in the headlights in all three key testimonies from last week, which was Dr. Williams, the chief public, uh, the chief medical officer of health, Christine Elliott, the minister of health in Fullerton. They're in the middle of this insanely designed, uh, complex, siloed, nobody talking to anybody else system. Uh, Williams managed to convey that he's the chief medical officer of health in Ontario and has no authority over anybody for anything. <laughs> uh, he's I'm sorry, I'm laughing. Team. It's not. I'm not in charge of this. I don't hear. I sit oh. at this table. I'm in this ADM. The local minister, uh, medical officer. So he's there. And then Elliot comes in with the two ministries suddenly split off into two. There used to be one, and all the different scientific tables and so on. And Fullerton comes in, and her notes are very good. And none of these people come off as stupid or inept or unintelligent. They're all articulate. I think they got caught up in this completely dysfunctional system, and nobody was able to get a grip on it and treat it as the emergency it deserved to be considered as. Uh, David, you know, speaking of Dr. Williams, I mean, and again, I have not read nearly as much as you guys. uh, My impression was that he was the one being deferred to, and he was the one who didn't realize the gravity of the situation. He was deferring to everybody else as they were deferring to him. Yeah, they were all they were all they were all pointing the finger at each other. It was it was well, there's one telling there's one telling moment. And I'm wondering if Dr. Stamatopoulos would agree with me where they ask him about um, Williams. Now, the awareness that the nursing homes were not Mm -hmm. getting the test results in time Oh, yeah. timely because they were getting them by mail, many of them. And they knew this. And they knew, and they asked it. Callahan asks Williams, did you not speak up knowing that these nursing homes didn't have the technology? Not blaming him for that, but knowing that they didn't have the technology. I don't know why it would be take technology, but they were waiting for the mail. You knew this. Did you speak up? He said no. I was yep. more concerned with getting the test results. I wasn't good. But didn't you think to tell the Callahan even asked him, did you go to the Minister of Long-Term Care and say, look, your nursing homes don't, are, are waiting for the mail to arrive? No. That bottom line, we saw this in the... This, they, I know, it's ridiculous. And, and bottom line, we knew this was happening when it was happening, right? So it's not like we learned all of this. We just saw no, no, their responses no. to it. And they, so Fullerton knew that this was happening, knew that these, these homes weren't getting their results quick enough. I mean, this was plastered all about Orchard Villa. Families weren't learning until three weeks after their loved one had passed that they had COVID. I mean, they knew this. You don't think the first thing you should have done has said, you know what? 
given it's so important, and they admitted this themselves, to get speedy results to these homes because we know they don't have proper infection prevention and control. We know that. They admitted it. Williams admitted it. It would make more sense to expeditiously hire someone, have them in charge to contact the homes directly. One rule should have been to contacting these homes immediately, knowing knowing how vulnerable they were. And you didn't think to do that simple thing? Well, yeah, except they once they even knew they didn't uh, do anything about it. I mean, I'm Nothing. still hearing Nothing. reports now of uh, no proper infection control, no proper use of PPE. That, that's going on now, David. It's a mess. Well, it's going. Well, that also came out of the testimony, and there was a uh, there was a t- both Williams knew and Fullerton. The hospitals that had gone into these nursing homes. Yep. And not all of them went in on an emergency basis. Some went in as a partner, all, you know, I'm going to look in on your home, reported back that the lack of uh, infection, the IPAC, infection prevention and control, was shocking. They were shocked to discover the state of unpreparedness. And it then emerged that they, they commented, and this came out later, Libby had mentioned, you know, the gap between wave one and wave two, what were they doing? They reported into the ministry, and this was confirmed by Fullerton's testimony and also by Steele, her deputy. They didn't think the inspectors knew what to look for. They didn't think the inspectors Well, you know why. This. And uh, that's, that, to me, was like a real eye-opener. What are they well, doing there if they, they don't know what to them. look for? Yeah, they didn't train them on IPAC. They, we learned that through the testimony, through Fullerton's testimony, that they didn't, public health didn't train them on infection and prevention and control. So, yeah, they knew certain things to look for, but they didn't have the full scope of information and training that they needed, and they admitted that. And then we also learned, well, we knew this, the, the pittance of, you know, funds they allocated for IPAC, which was, what, $20, $20 million, I believe, when, when yeah. if you look at what that actually amounts to, it's $30,000 per home. And Callahan very rightly said, well, hold on. A, an, an IPAC specialist would make roughly 100k a year, so you would need roughly four times that in order to get one, just one of these experts per home, which they didn't do, but should have done, plain and simple. Uh, it's just, David, it's, um, you know, uh, in the summer, when Quebec was putting in measures, putting an IPAC specialist in each home, and also uh, when they were instituting the specialized training and paying for people to take the training, was there any question or discussion? You know, did Ontario think of doing the same thing? Was there anything like that that came out in the commission? Yes, um, by default, by omission. Uh, Deputy Minister Steele, in fact, this is, I considered this so important, I've called it up on my screen so I can read it to you. He's talking about the what they did in the summer putting in place some of the elements in the Wave 2 plan. Um, And he says, um, it was fundamentally constructed as a self-assessment exercise, working with the LINs and working with the hospital partners. It was not intended, it should have been, but it was not intended as a kind of audit tool. It was intended as a kind of capacity-building, self-assessment preparedness tool. So he's leaving it up to the nursing homes. Sort of review and assess. Hey yeah. guys, you know what shape are you in for? He didn't. They yeah. didn't go after it specifically. Yeah. They sat back. So yeah. uh, again, but was there any no pointed question? Why didn't you do the things that yes. Francois Legault in yes. Quebec did? Well, yes, they did. Callahan asked them that both about the hiring and about uh, you know of extra workers, and they they dismissed that as being yeah, hired orderlies. Whatever Sorry, they dismissed that as what? Well, Quebec, you got to yeah. be clear. They were they were just hiring orderlies. So I forget Hold whether on. it was Williams or Ford. Okay, orderlies are case. personal support yeah, workers. They are. I know. I'm she didn't even know that. that. She didn't even know word. that. Okay, sh- just 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 relax one Perhaps at a time, the please. Remembers that quote, but they kind of poo pooed Quebec a little bit. The, I I I would be very. Do you have any exact kind of uh, quote on how they poo pooed it? They 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 used the word orderlies and then they said they didn't read. They wound up with a they hired eight thousand, but only five thousand. I think I'm going by memory here uh, stuck around. So they didn't. I mean, they didn't criticize Quebec, but they didn't. They didn't. uh, you know, respond, and clearly they were not on a crisis emergency footing during the summer. They wouldn't have left it up to all these homes to just do, as he says, a self-assessment tool. And uh, 
And then Callahan asked him, well, did every, did those results of those assessments even make it to the local level? And he says, well, the results of these preparedness assessments, they were available locally in terms of who precisely got them in each area. That's a fair question. You know, maybe there should have been more structured process around who was getting that information. I think we kind of left it to the regions to manage. So they were on a business as usual footing and they were not treating it as a, uh, one-off unusual emergency where you got to throw away the, you know, the check boxes and you've got to respond to what's actually happening. Uh, and uh, again, was what kind of um, explanation or excuse, Doctor Stamatopoulos, did they give for not being ready for the second they wave? They didn't. They didn't. They didn't. They they were deflecting. So when they asked them about Quebec. They, then, you know, Mr. Fullerton was confused and said, well, hold on, that's orderlies. Yeah, orderlies is the same term for PSW. So why didn't you do the same? She, they were deflecting. They didn't actually answer the question. It's difficult to find staff. Uh, you know, it's really hard. They said the same thing about inspectors when they called them out on that. Why didn't you have more inspectors? You should have been hiring in a pandemic. You don't. You know, Callahan was so, frankly, disgusted, saying, how do you not attribute more resources for inspectors on IPAC during a pandemic? Are you kidding me? And it was just, they didn't have proper answers. They just did not have proper answers. No, and, they went and, and we saw what happened. And I, I think the uh, doctor will uh, back me up. They did a lot of, that's a good point. It's something we have to look at for the future. Yeah, right? Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. We have, that's a fair question. We have to now. look at that for the yeah. future. That's a good point. We have to look at that for the future. Yeah. Okay, um, yeah. we've, we've got to uh, begin wrapping this up. So uh, the upshot of this, Dr. Stamatopoulos, is this going to go anywhere? Is this going to collect dust like so many other reports? I mean, if you look at, you know, the history as a predictor of the future, it's going to be another, you know, door marker, um, which is sad because there's a lot of really good evidence in here, and which is why I'm taking my fight to national standards. Okay, yes, I think we all want national standards. Yeah. And, and uh, David, uh, what's the upshot for you? There's an election next June, and uh, CARP is going to do everything in its power to make this the issue. And Good. does the Ministry of Health and Ministry of Long-Term Care between the two of them, do they have the horses and do they have the system to deliver, not just on this topic, but on uh, long-term care going forward, on health care going forward, do they have the mechanism to deliver the quality of health care that we have a right to expect. And on on this evidence, the answer is a resounding no. Okay. Uh, I'm sure we'll be checking back in on this. In the meantime, thank you so much, David Kravitz and Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos. Thank you so much, Libby. Okay, uh, we're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, we'll be talking to lawyer Ari Goldkind about the verdict just in on the van attack, the perpetrator, and I'm going to try to avoid using his name, guilty on all counts, when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The man who planned and carried out the Young Street van attack is criminally responsible for his actions. Superior Court Justice Anne Malloy found Alec Manassian guilty of 10 counts of first-degree murder and 16 counts of attempted murder. The judge said, quote, he thought about committing these crimes over a considerable period of time and made a considered decision to proceed and notwithstanding its horrific nature, he had no remorse for it and for his victims. The unequivocal verdict is, among many other things, a huge relief for the autistic community because the perpetrator's lawyer argues that he should be found not criminally responsible because of his autism. Uh, I'm now joined by criminal defense lawyer Ari Goldkind. Hi, Ari. Libby, great to be on with you. Thank you. Uh, so uh, is is this uh, decision a surprise? Uh, I had uh, been asked that question many times over the last uh, few months, and my answer was always my chances of success for the defense. I pegged it around 0.000000 at a couple more zeros than 0.5. That's not a knock against his defense team at all. In fact, his defense team could argue in some way they were actually successful today in some of their legal arguments, not the ultimate finding or factual 
disappointing, but uh, his defense team did a heck of a job with very, very little to work with, having to go as far as flying in through Zoom, so flying in, uh, in a pre-COVID way, um, somebody from the United States to put forward the defense they wanted. But even that witness, who I was skeptical about from the first time I even Googled him, uh, that witness was not able to carry the day, and uh, Judge Malloy uh, said that while the defense argument certainly had some merit to be brought, and in certain circumstances, autism spectrum disorder could get in the door uh, of NCR-type defenses, she essentially said, uh, if I could make the uh, answer concise, Mr. Manassian is evil. He planned and deliberated this. His quest for infamy was obvious. He knew what he was doing was not only legally wrong, but morally wrong. In fact, that's the reason he did it is because he knew it was morally wrong and would make him famous. And she essentially said, uh, too bad, so sad to him, and uh, going to go to jail for the rest of his life. That's the nutshell version of 68 Pages, which, by the way, everybody should read. Now, uh, is it going to be for life, or will he be eligible for parole in 20 or 25 so, years? Yeah, so this is the question I've been talking about all morning, and to me it's the more interesting question now, and here's why. And Libby, you've got to paint this picture in your mind, and so does your audience. Visualize this. For many, many years, if not decades, in our criminal justice system, you would get a life sentence. But life, as you know, in Canada means you're still eligible for parole after 25 years. You'll remember that at, from time to time, Paul Bernardo raises his ugly head for parole, right? Very different than the States, where life means life in certain sort of more capital uh, murder cases. And by life, I mean life, you're going to die in jail. Many years ago, the Harper government, a government that you're almost not allowed to talk about anymore in the criminal justice system, sort of like Voldemort or something, said, well, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, say, Don't make me laugh in the middle of this conversation. No, but look, you gotta, I'm going to get to something that should make you laugh and smile here, because there's a woman here who should be the face of this case going forward named Kathy Riddell, a blind woman who was mowed over by Mr. Manassi, and let her beautiful face and personality and uh, her compassion and her decency, let that be the face of good persisting after horrible evil, uh, in my view. So I think there is room for some humor here, nothing humorous at the expense of anybody, but life has to have some levity. And as Ms. Riddell said, she feels a great sense of uh, relief today, and she's been through hell and horror, none of us can imagine. But back to the point, the Voldemort government called the Harper government said, wait a minute, you can kill two or three or four people, but how is it that for each life taken, the extra life does not matter, emphasize, does not matter for the purposes of parole. In other words, you can kill one person or five people, you could still apply for parole after 25 years. The Harper government put an end to that, said the judges could sentence people based on the value of each life, and right now, that's the decision in this case, because just recently, Libby, and as I see we're getting close to the bottom of the hour, I'll make this answer quicker, judges have been given consecutive parole ineligibility periods. If you kill two people, for example, 50. If you kill three people, 75. But the Quebec Court of Appeal just struck that down as unconstitutional because that was cruel and unusual punishment to a killer. Uh, okay. Um, okay, so what, so uh, the the answer, the short answer is it's it's up in the air whether or not he will be eligible for parole. Yeah, so here's what's going to be. What's going to be is that the Supreme Court is looking at the issue I just explained to you in 30 seconds, and it really is that simple. Judges have taken the invitation to value human life in Canada as each life has a value. One decision in the Quebec Court of Appeal said, no, unconstitutional and it's cruel and unusual. It doesn't give somebody a hope of breathing the same air as Libby's Nimer one day. The Supreme Court will weigh in on this at some point, probably in the next uh, year. So the Manassian decision, they'll either arrive at something that all of the parties can agree with and live with, or they will litigate this issue once the Supreme Court gives its decision. So don't think that the Manassian decision is coming anytime in the next month. Okay, and what about the sentencing? That's what I mean. When yeah. I say the decision, I mean the decision on sentence. They're coming back in a couple of weeks just for scheduling, but my sense is with the very fine lawyers on each side of the file, 
They're, they may choose to wait until after the Supreme Court says it's constitutional or not to stack parole and eligibility periods the way I've seen. But, and that means in English, Libby, that every life has its own value for parole eligibility. And so the decision on parole and eligibility, it is life sentence. On first-degree murder, it's essentially 10 life sentences. But on parole and eligibility, this case may not finish in the next two to three months. Okay, uh, final question, Ari. I mean, in in terms of the the nature of the defense, I mean, this whole thing really had uh, the advocacy community for people with autism completely uh in a in a tizzy because they were worried that that if he he got not criminally responsible for this that it would really reflect and set back the rights of people with autism so this type of defense has this laid it to rest or or are people going to have another go the next time it it becomes plausible here's the bad news if you're in the autism community, not only did it not lay the defense to rest, because that's being very misunderstood today, and I can't, I'm sure we don't have time at the bottom of the hour to get into it, but the judge left open the idea that for a different accused in the future, a different one, not a Manassian, autism spectrum disorder does get through the threshold of being something that the court can consider going to somebody's state of mind or appreciation of wrongfulness. So the door has been opened. So that's not good news. And the flip side in 30 seconds is that what if the defense would have succeeded? Then he goes to the hospital for the rest of his life. His risk would always be what it was. And that would send a terrible message to the broader Canadian and worldwide community that somebody with autism is a ticking time bomb when the truth is, Libby, as I'm sure you quite know, people with autism are the victims of crime, not the perpetrators of it. Absolutely. Uh, Ari, anything you want to leave us with? No, Libby, I'm always cautious of the time, but the good news today is that Judge Malloy did the right thing, and here is something to keep in mind. Oftentimes, the court dresses things up in legalese and Latin phrases and things that are just not normal language. Justice Malloy kept things very simple in her decision, and she essentially said, I don't care what that guy from the United States thinks. I've listened to Alec Manassian. I watched what he did. He planned. He deliberated. He knew what he was doing was not only legally wrong, but morally wrong. And that's why he did it. And that guy can spend the rest of his life behind bars, guilty on all counts. Okay. Ari Goldkind, thank you so much for that. Thank you, Libby. Okay. Uh, I'm going to take a call from Todd in Pennsylvania. Hello, Todd. Libby, it is so fun to be on your show. And all the way from Pennsylvania. Welcome. Yes, ma'am. I'm a first-time caller. Oh, wait, wait. There you go. Thank you. That is so cool. And I and I tell you, Miss Libby, it is 59 degrees down here, so spring is on the way. Okay. But uh, I wanted to let you guys know that I'm grateful for that judge in Canada because in the United States, I was born and raised here, by the way. In the United States, victims of crime are left hanging because the perpetrators know exactly what they did. But yet, oftentimes, they're found not guilty by reason of insanity. And that's just, in my view, unacceptable. Well, in this case, uh, for sure, that uh, that defense didn't work. And uh, if you heard Ari talking about it, uh, it's, it's uh, you know, uh, the idea that that will be used as a defense in the future. The door is open. But for this time, I know that the community here was very worried about it. And Todd, it's great to hear from you all the way in Pennsylvania. Thanks for your call. Yes, ma'am. I just love you guys at Zoomer, and I sure mean that. And I get to listen to you on my iPhone. Great. And I'm so glad to hear you guys. I just love you guys. I wish I could come up and visit sometime. Okay. Well, maybe when all this horrible pandemic is over, you can. Thanks for your call. Have a good day. Okay. You too. Bye-bye.
Okay, uh, we are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about your taxes and to a group that is calling out the government because they're saying that the tax system is unfair for single seniors. Uh, so we'll be drilling down on that. And we're also going to have a tax accountant on with them. Maybe he's got some advice. Uh, but uh, we're going to be talking about keeping some of your hard-earned cash when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are heading into tax season and as we all start figuring out how to keep as much money as possible in our own pockets, I'd like to bring in some local Zoomers on a mission. They're part of a group called Single Seniors for Tax Fairness. Their issue is that there are significant tax breaks available for couples uh, that uh, single people just don't have access to. And this, while, as we all know, life in general is more expensive for single people. Uh, This group is also concerned that renters miss out on breaks that are designed for homeowners. So I'd like to give the numbers out again. If you have some thoughts on this or if this affects you, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Catherine Capalacci and Jane Robertson, both co-creators of Single Seniors for Tax Fairness, along with Frank Fazari, who is a managing partner of Fazari and Partners, LLP, Chartered Professional Accountants. Hello and welcome to all of you. Hi, Libby. Thanks so much for having us. Okay, well, thank you. you. Uh, Let us begin with Catherine. And I know that a lot of single people have long been irritated about this just uh you know bring us in here is the the fact is that you cannot get a benefit from something like income splitting uh so how do you see it yeah uh so our organization is completely based on the fact that um our tax system albeit quite useful for you know a majority of people it's uh it's quite an outdated system for many reasons, but the one that we specify on ourselves has to do with uh, two facts that were very, very relevant uh, at the time of you know our tax system's inception and will always probably be, be very relevant to the majority. But those two things are, are marriage or uh, common law relationships, couples, and homeownership. And again, while those things are super useful for a lot of people, there are uh, there is a big chunk of our population that are single seniors um, who, you know, have never had a home or, uh, or have made it into the housing market and that are just completely missing a lot of opportunities that the tax system bends over backwards to give couples. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jane, what's your perspective on this? I, I, you know, I've talked about the single population before, and it has more than doubled in the last 35 years and is growing exponentially. And the last census also showed that. And of course, not just in the demographic. So uh, what would you like to see? Jane? Uh- uh, yes, hi. Hi. I would like to see an evenness. Um, I would like uh, the single people to have the same benefits as couples have, and especially those who are renters rather than homeowners. Um, I have friends uh, who uh, have sold homes that we're all in our 80s now uh, for 2 to $3 million dollars, all of that money is tax-free. It's distributed to their grandchildren and um, whoever else they want to have it. Whereas the money that I have saved, because I have never, first of all, I don't have any of the benefits of a couple, no income splitting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And consequently, um, because I have no one to split my income with, I uh, don't even qualify for uh, old age pension. Whereas a couple who splits an income and often lives in a $3 million house can also collect 
OAS. Um, and so my money is all in cash, either invested in stocks or bonds or sitting in cash. And upon death, all of that will be uh, declared as income for that particular year, and I will lose half of it. So, okay, well, or your your beneficiaries anyway. Um, uh, yes, I have no children, but I have two nieces and a nephew who are part of an immigrant family who have grown up in poverty and who I have really been the mainstay in my life for the last 25 years. And they have, you know, parents who are very poor and won't get anything from them. I would love to be able to leave them a, a legacy of some sort. Of course, it will be nothing like the legacy of some of my friends who are able to pass on, you know, close to a million dollars to their to each of their children. Uh, let's... Um, I'm lucky if I'm able to leave 50000 for each of these kids. Um, let's bring in Frank Fazari. I'm sure uh, that you are very familiar with these types of uh, complaints. Uh, what do you say to your clients who are single who face the same situation? So, so I think where the big disparity happens between somebody who owns a home and somebody who doesn't own a, a home and, say, chooses to put their money into an RSP is that um, the home appreciation, uh, as we've seen, especially in Ontario or Toronto, has gone up substantially. So, so uh, a retired couple sells their home, makes two, three million dollars, as was noted, and they don't pay any tax. And so where the disparity comes is where, when somebody um, decides not to buy a home and instead invests in, say, their RSP. Their RSP they invest in their RSP. Now they get a deduction for the RSP contributions while they are making those those contributions over time. But when it comes down to retirement, close to retirement, they're not making contributions. And typically, the RSPs are invested in, from my experience, in very conservative uh, portfolios. So they're not buying Microsoft. They're not buying Tesla. So they 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 grow. Um, at a very uh, slow rate, a snail's pace relative to what's happened in the housing market. So again, so the individual who, the senior who sells their home for three million bucks, they pay no tax, and they're done with it. Whereas somebody who decides to put money into an RSP, not a home, uh, their estate pays tax, and, and depending on the tax rate of, of the deceased, uh, it could be up to 50% of the RSP. And if those RSPs have grown at a snail's pace, so that means that half of that RSP is, is gone, whereas the person who decides, oh, I'm going to invest in my own home, uh, all that tax money comes out tax-free. So there is a big, a big difference. Uh, the tax system has always been designed that way, that principal residents you don't pay any tax on, and RSPs you do pay income. And I think for single seniors, that's the biggest um, uh, thing that they see as they come close to. Um, um, is is there anything that you advise your single clients to do to try and level that playing field or not? Yes. So so a lot of seniors that I've seen over time accumulate a lot of money in RSPs and, and they just decide, I'm just going to withdraw that money and pay the tax on a rainy day. Meanwhile, they can they can earn about twenty five thousand, approximately twenty five thousand dollars a year, tax free, uh, and or they can bring their income up to forty five thousand dollars a year and pay ten percent in taxes, approximately ten percent. So what we advise our clients, if a client has two three hundred thousand dollars in an RSP, for example, rather than wait to the end or wait for that rainy day, and perhaps if they could use some of that money, and rather than pay tax at maybe 50% on that money, take it out uh, uh, over time and reduce the tax rate from 0% if your income is under 25000 or 10% if it's under 45000 So that's the biggest advice we give clients who have the RSP savings. Uh, rather than wait to the end or wait, wait to a rainy day, take them out slowly at a time. And, and you're talking about before they have to take it out in a riff at the age of 71. And, and, or at 71, they have to take it out as a riff. And normally, it's negligible what they have to take out. So maybe they should look at increasing the amount of 
that they take out rather than the minimum rather than the minimum even though it sounds doesn't sound right that you're going to pay some tax but the tax rate might be 10% or might be less depending on their income so 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 why not increase the minimum so that's the biggest thing that i think seniors could do Okay, I'm going to give the numbers out again in case you have questions or comments about this. We're talking about some of the disadvantages that singles, particularly older singles, face in terms of the tax system. Uh, They don't get to enjoy certain advantages like income splitting, where a partner who makes more can transfer part of their income to the partner who makes less, thereby cutting the tax burden. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'm talking to two women who founded a group called Single Seniors for Tax Fairness. And uh, Catherine, uh, what's your suggestion, say, on, on the business about income splitting? What would you like to see that you think would make things fair? Yeah, it's it's a tricky thing. Um, Jane and I have have ummed and odd, but the reality is we're not uh, <laughs> we're not policymakers. Uh, but we are hoping that by raising awareness and bringing attention uh, to this cause, that there will be some opportunity um, of a, in the form of a tax break or in the form of uh, some kind of uh, different um, you know uh, opportunity there, a benefit that can be distributed to single seniors based on income, based on assets, based on the fact that they have been, you know, paying what is approximately two-thirds of what it costs to uh, to be a couple. That's the that is the cost approximately of a of a single person versus couples is, is two thirds of the amount. Absolutely, um, like there's single yeah. supplements on everything. You're paying rent by yourself. It's um yeah. It's really difficult. And the other thing to to really pay attention to that that brought my attention to this because I I'm I'm in my twenties. This doesn't necessarily apply to me yet. Uh, but the reason I found this. Uh, incredibly interesting and very, very apparent is that this situation, like you said, Libby, based on our most recent census, uh, there's a fantastic um, Statistics Canada uh, research paper that I suggest everyone go read if they like. It's called Living Alone in Canada. Um, Our demographic is moving towards more single houses or more single income residences. Yes, more single households. Yes, uh, exactly, households. uh, let me just jump uh, jump in with the statistic, and and that is, it's now it's doubled in the last uh, yep. in, in the last thirty five years, and there are more and more people. And it's uh, you know, for older people, maybe they lose a partner or they face divorce, but a lot of it is by choice. Now, in terms of the housing, now that you tell me you're in your twenties, now I get <laughs> why you're more worried about about the uh, the the provision for a house. But in terms of uh, seniors, in terms of older people, then most of them are homeowners. 4.2 million senior citizens are yes. homeowners, most with a paid-off mortgage, and that is the source uh, of actually what what can turn into a windfall, except a lot of people saying, hey, I want to age in place. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to move out of my beloved home and, uh, you know, maybe go into uh, some kind of residence unless I absolutely have to. So, you know, it it is a question. I know uh, that, you know, for instance, my husband and I look at increasing value of our home and uh, it's it's a number. Because uh, we don't really intend to ever, unless we desperately have to, move out of there. Uh, I'm going to take a couple of questions. Let's go to Tony in Mississauga. Hi, Tony. Hello, Libby. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Uh, after I deal with this pandemic, I'll be much better. Oh, that's good. All of us. So go ahead. your guest made a comment regarding a 2 or $3 million home. And although it is hypothetically, but it is reality... I sell my house and make $3 million or sell it for $3 million. Now I move into a, um, an assistant living facility and I'll pay around $50,000, $60,000 a year and have those $3 million in a bank account. Uh, 
if I was to have both my daughters as uh, their names on the account, in other words, joint, upon my death, mm -hmm. will there be any taxes to be paid um, uh, on that inheritance? I think, well, I'm going to let Frank answer. Okay. Thank you. So, I, uh, hi, Tony. I can answer that question. No problem. Sure. So, so capital, you don't pay taxes on capital. So if your $3 million arose from the sale of your principal residence and you put it into a, a bank account and then, and then on your death it, it, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's given to, um, to your doctors, they don't pay tax on the $3 million. They no, do no, not. daughters, not doctors, daughters. Daughters, okay, sorry, I, I didn't hear that. But none, nonetheless, you don't, you, they will not pay tax on you gift, uh, them inheriting the capital. But should he well, put their names on the account? Well, they would not be inheritance because they would, their names would also be on the same bank account. In other words, they're joint. And that's a way to prevent paying the taxes on so, the inheritance. So, so you, you, won't, you won't pay, you won't, pay income tax they will your daughters will not pay income taxes on the three million they might pay probate probate when you have to uh, probate your will when when your estate has to probate your will and it's about one and a half percent on the value yeah but if they're joint if they're if that's a joint account that won't be part of the will yeah. right if it's excluded from 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 the from the assets if it's excluded then it, you will not pay uh, probate there will certainly will be no no income taxes Okay. And, uh, and, and, of course, there won't be any need for a will because they would just walk into the bank and withdraw as much money as they wish, like I was alive still. Okay, you've got to be careful with that. Yeah, I would get... There was a nice... Uh, there was a Supreme Court decision, uh, a B.C. Supreme Court decision in the, in the news today about somebody not having a will. It's a simple will, simple matter. Uh, I suggest you read it, and uh, you should get a will. Yeah, you Well, should... I do have a will, but furthermore... Uh, I believe the tax is payable on any money or income uh, from interests payable uh, if it's not withdrawn within one year. I believe that's the law. Okay, uh, Tony, we, we, we have to move on. Um, when you've got a big asset like that, best to consult a professional. Uh, uh, Tony, wishful thinking on my part, by the way, Libby. Okay, thanks for that, Tony and Mississauga. <laughs> I love your... Um, your uh, show on TV, by the way. Keep it up. I love it. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Okay. I'm going to take one more very quick call from Harry in Guelph. Hi, Harry. Hi. How are you doing this morning? Fine. How are you? Uh, I'm fine. I'm living alone. Ten years ago, my wife passed away. Sorry to hear that. And I was the sole beneficiary. So her. prior to that, we were splitting income. And then her money came to me, and right away the government started taking part of my old age pension away, mm -hmm. which they are still doing, and I didn't think that was fair at all. Some people think I'm a rich senior, which I'm not. I just wanted to make that comment. Okay. Um, I think that is exactly what Jane and Catherine are talking about. Uh, Harry, thanks very much for your call. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay. Uh, well, Jane, uh, that's exactly what you're talking about, is it not? Yes, it is. But, um, sorry, I, want, I can't remember the gentleman's name. Harry. Harry. If he still lives in his home, he has an asset that, and especially if he's in Mississauga or Toronto area, he has an asset that's worth millions one way or the other. Um, and... Well, just to comment on what Frank was talking about in terms of suggesting how to get around this, mm -hmm. when he talks about single people with two or three hundred thousand dollars on in the bank and um, they should withdraw, you know, bit by bit, that puts them almost in the it, it's certainly in a low income category, whereas their neighbor sitting in a house is worth the two to three million. So they're just completely different economic levels. Um, I think a fair comparison to the person who has the two or three million dollar house is somebody with a million dollars in cash in the bank who is, or in stocks or whatever, 
who is going to lose half of it upon death. Well, whether whether you're whether you're single, married, or whatever, if you've got assets uh, like RSPs or, or whatever yeah. it is, your that that your estate, yes, uh, is 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 going to be taxed at that level. So let right. me ask you again, Jane. I mean, what do you see as a remedy for this? Well, an evening out of uh, the benefits for people upon death. I mean, they should not be penalized for never buying a home and always being a renter and always being single. I mean, it's been a hard enough struggle with all, if you fit into all those categories versus a couple who gets breaks and the most important one, tax-free money at the end that they can leave for their... Well, I, I mean, you know... Uh, I'm not a policymaker either. I, to me, it would make more sense uh, to to do something for single people while they're living, as opposed to yes. after. And and their both. Dead. I mean, if they wanted, you know, if they're going to give the homeowner two or three million dollars free for a house yeah, but that cost eighteen thousand. That's 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 a very specific um, situation. It at a very specific point in time, um, it it seems uh, you know some people are having that windfall now. Their kids certainly won't have that windfall. Uh, but I can, hear you. I, there are definite disadvantages, uh, Frank. Can, what would you like to com- leave us with? Uh, can, I just want to make a comment on that. On that one, we only uh, have about a minute left. Okay, so. so so I think what Jane is getting at a, um, a married couple. A uh, 65-year-older could earn $45,000 and pay no tax. An individual, uh, uh, a retired, a 65-year-old retired individual could may earn 45000 and would pay 10% in tax. So I think that's the disparity, right? So if you could be a couple, earn $45,000, and uh, 65 years old, pay no tax, versus uh, an individual, um, uh, 65 or older, and pay uh, 10% tax on 45000 in income. Yeah, but if you push oh. it up to, uh, I mean, I know I a lot of people okay. talking about. Oh, yeah, I have to stop. Okay, sorry. Okay, uh, we are um, out of time. Uh, thank you very much, Catherine Capalacci, Jane Robinson, and Frank Fazari. We appreciate your time. Thank, thank, thank you. you so much, Libby. Thank you. Thank you. Thank okay, you. and that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.